0: Everybody, how's everybody doing? Good. All right, if uh, you don't know me and I don't know you, I am Andrew Cross. Everybody calls me Cross, I'm the young adults pastor here at Bellevue. Uh, we are so glad you're here. If you're a first time guest, we want a little bit of information from you. Uh, so, you have these cards at the center of your table. Uh, feel free to fill one of these out and give them to your table leader, and you can actually have a coffee mug uh, free. That's our free gift to you for just a little bit of information. Uh we're about to dive into our topic of anxiety and depression here at our spotlight today. I just want to draw your attention to a few things. This is my email. If at any point you get a question, I'm not going to be able to answer questions today. Uh but if at any point you get a question, you're like I would love to know the answer to this, uh feel free to email me. I'd love to to address your question uh possibly at, at the other spotlight that we'll have. Also personal prayer requests. Anything that you're like, hey, this is this is actually really resonating with me. I would love some prayer in this area. Um we will have another Anxiety and Depression Spotlight March 1st, so please feel free to go ahead and put that on your calendar, March 1st. Awesome. I am so I love this room. This is awesome. Uh, I love that you're here. I think God is going to help uh, you or help you help someone. Uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're addressing these topics, is because either you are struggling with one of these things or you know someone who is. And so I want to show you uh, two things in particular. Uh, two overlapping key truths. The first is that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Second, God's word is sufficient to helping you be sanctified through your problems. So can we get those? Yeah, we have those right here. God can be trusted. God's word is sufficient to help you Be sanctified through your problems. I'm going to kind of hash that second one out real quick. God's word is enough. God's word is enough to help you be made more holy through issues like anxiety, depression, and anger, lust, greed, envy, any of those things. God's word is sufficient to help you be made more holy, more into the image of Jesus Christ through those issues. So keep those two truths in mind. You may have already known those. We're forgetful people that's who we are as human beings. So be reminded of these things, and I hope you will see them to be true as we, as we look at this today. We're going to look mostly at anxiety. I will address a little bit of depression today, uh, but mo- our, our main topic will be anxiety today, and then we'll, we'll address mostly depression uh, March 1st. Uh, but because they're so closely related, uh, we wanted to, to go ahead and say this is our anxiety and depression spotlight. So as we address some of these things. I want us to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.'" For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, come upon us now, Lord God, as we come to you. We come to you to learn from you. That you would show us that you are worthy of our trust and that your word is sufficient to help us through our problems like anxiety, like depression. God, we, we are here for you. We're here to learn at your feet. And so God, I pray that you would help us now as we look to rest in you and you alone. Uh, Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Anxiety is is a word that is kind of thrown around pretty flippantly today. Uh, You may know somebody who says, I am feeling anxious, or I'm struggling with anxiety, or I'm suffering from anxiety even. And so... We want to know what that means, what that person means when they say the word anxiety, but I think it's a good thing that they're, they're coming to us and saying, hey, I, I am having problems with anxiety, uh, because it, it serves as like a canary in the coal mine. If you know this expression, you know coal miners used to take a caged bird into the coal mines, and, and they would... Uh, go deeper in, in, into darker areas and, and so that they would know that there was toxic, toxic gas nearby. Uh, they would take this bird, and if there was uh, just an overabundance of the toxicity in that coal mine, the bird would die. And that would serve as a, a warning. Hey, get out. We need to get out of this situation quick because something's wrong. And we have this bird's death to, to prove it. It serves as a canary in the coal mine. That is how we should look at Anxiety—it's—it's a, it's a warning. It's like get out! You're too—you're in—you're in too deep. You're—you're you're in darkness, and there is toxicity all around you. And so, when we are in anxiety, we want to get out. We—we we want relief, and that's a good thing. And we should want that for the people who come to us about their anxiety. But what is anxiety? So I want to give you an an informal definition. This is my own definition. I'm not a, a medical expert, uh, but I do uh, see where uh, anxiety is, is kind of fleshed out through Scripture, and here's what I find to be true about anxiety. In formal definition, anxiety is a form of fear in which the person perceives a threat of danger to themselves, someone they cherish, or something they treasure. Anxiety is a form of fear in which the person perceives a threat of danger to themselves, someone they cherish, or something they treasure. Whenever you hear the word anxiety, you should equate that with threat. So when you see anxiety or you hear somebody say, I have anxiety, what you're you're hearing them say is, there's a threat. There's a threat on myself, someone I love, or something that I treasure. It is a, is a form of fear. Fear does not discriminate between past, present, and future, uh, whereas anxiety is all about the future, and it, it doesn't care if it's certain danger or perceived danger. You, you see in your future a variety of different things that could threaten you, someone you love, or something you treasure. It's all about the future, and it's all about that perceived threat about what could possibly happen. I want to do everything I can to prepare you to handle anxiety in healthy, faith-filled, and fruitful ways. If you have anxiety, I'm not here to guilt you for that. Together, we are going to see that there are some sinful aspects to anxiety, but there are also some genuine human aspects to anxiety as well. So we turn now to God's word to help us better understand Our human experience. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is a psalm of David, and the context tells us that it was likely before he was King David. He was pursued by enemies, shut out from the house of the Lord, forsaken by his parents, and the subject of slander, all based on what he says in this psalm, Psalm 27. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, said, Psalm 27 is a song of cheerful hope, well-fitted for those in trial who have learned to lean on the almighty arm. (laughs) Psalm 27, verses one through four say this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The, The main point I want us to see from Psalm 27, these few verses, is that fear has always been part of the experience of God's people, and God delights in ministering to them. Fear has always been a part of the experience of God's people, and God delights in ministering to them. In Psalm 27, David is giving a past report about how he experienced and processed his fear. Our objective in looking at this psalm is not not quite to see how do I handle my anxiety. I just want to prove the case to you that it is reflecting on who God is in the midst of legitimate fear. You saw in verse 1, he says, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? Verse 3, my heart shall not fear. Why doesn't David fear in this situation when we know his, his threat is legitimate? People are hunting him down, looking to kill him. That's a legitimate threat. And yet he's able to say that he processed his anxiety, his fear, in faith-filled ways, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold. Though the enemy encamp against me, I shall not fear. David sees, shows us that it is possible to process our anxiety, our fear, with confidence, hope, prayer, and faith. Why? What's his secret? Well, one thing... Have I asked of the Lord? That should draw our attention. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that which I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, if you know your your Bible history, you know the the temple, what we know to be the temple that he references there, has not been built yet. Uh, David comes up with the idea later in life after he is king, and he's not even the one to build it. Who is? Solomon, his son. That's right. And so we see that this temple that he's referencing here isn't quite the temple that we know existed later. Uh, what he's looking forward to is the everlasting, eternal presence of God. Right? He says, all the days of my life. The, the way that David is able to process his anxiety, his fear, which is legitimate, uh, around a legitimate threat, is by the presence of God. It has everything to do with the presence of God. Because the Lord is present with him, he is able to process his fear, his anxiety. And he talks about gazing at the beauty of the Lord, right? When he could be crippled by his fear, he is not. He's thinking all about the presence of the Lord and gazing at the beauty of the Lord. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says in commenting on this psalm, divided aims tend to distraction, weakness, disappointment. Let all our affections be bound up in one affection, and that affection set on heavenly things. Uh, There was uh, one Christmas when I was a kid that I procrastinated, I waited until the very last second to make a Christmas list. And uh, it was Christmas Eve. I was in a panic mode. (sighs) And I thought, oh, no, I have not created my formal Christmas list. So let me be about that right now. And so I got a piece of paper. I started jotting down everything I could possibly want. And uh, and then I go and just put it next to the fireplace and go to bed. (laughs) Needless to say, I was a little disappointed the next morning, right? Because all of my desires in that moment were numerous, spontaneous, and short-lived. Are our desires any different now? Numerous, spontaneous, short-lived. It sets us up for disappointment. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, talking to God. What we see David experiencing in Psalm 27 is a heart that is at rest in God amidst troubling circumstances. So he's able to say verses 5 and 6. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices, with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. There were real circumstances that surrounded David, and yet he is able to say, I'm going to sing with joy. I'm going to praise the Lord, looking to spending eternity with him in his presence, in the presence of God. You may be there with them. Yet, you're struggling with anxiety. It's not because you're not seeking after God. It's because your anxiety is screaming. It's loud, and you tune everything else out, not by choice, but because it's there. What do we do with that? Here's David's secret. He says in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's verse 1. He says, my salvation. God wants his people To process their anxiety in light of who God is and what he has done. That's your applicational point. God wants you to process your anxiety in light of who he is and what he has done for you. And the ultimate thing that he did is give us his son, Jesus. He settled our sin problem. That is our greatest problem. We were enemies of God. There's a sense in which Jesus can say every psalm and wholeheartedly mean it. And so when he talks, when David talks about the enemies of God, the evildoers in verse two, assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. That could be said of us, that we are enemies of God. There is a separation between us and our God because of our sin. And yet, God displayed his love in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. And that is grace for you. That saves us. It saves us from our ultimate, deepest, darkest problem, the sin that's in our life. And so if God is able to do that and handle that for us, he is able to handle our anxiety, our fear, when people are coming after us, when there is a legitimate threat on our life, on someone we love, or something we treasure, God is able to handle it. He can be trusted. Now, I want to clarify, don't get this wrong. At face value, your anxiety is not sin. I want to make that clear. At face value, your anxiety is not sin. It is not wrong. It is an opportunity to trust God. Your anxiety is an opportunity to trust God. As we dive deeper, we will see some of these areas in which anxiety is a sin. But for right now, all I want you to know is that having anxiety is not sin in and of itself. It is an opportunity to trust God. Uh, Before we go any further, I want to show you how your heart responds to your context in three different facets, in three different facets. This is called the dynamic heart response model. It sounds really cool, doesn't it? It's not mine. It's my professor's from seminary, uh, but he showed us how our heart responds to our context. One way is cognition. That's a fancy word for saying thoughts, beliefs. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to to jot this down. Cognition, thoughts, beliefs. Over here we have affection. This is our feelings, our desires. And then finally, we have volition. These are our choices, our commitments. All right, I want to prove to you that this is biblical. So first, let's look at cognition. Do we have it up here? Cognition. We are a thinking heart. Scripture says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So this is Jesus being a heart reader, knowing that they were thinking something, and he's rebuking them. Why do you think evil in your hearts? This is cognition. We are a thinking heart. Affection. Let's take a look at affection. Affection. We are a feeling heart. Sorrow has filled your heart. But I, see you, I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Sorrow, joy, these are emotions, right? We are a feeling heart. And then finally, volition. We are an intentional heart. Why is it that you have contrived this deed, choosing to lie, in your heart? This is something we looked at Wednesday night and midweek. We looked at Ananias and how he chose to do something in his heart, and Peter rebukes him for it. We are an intentional heart. So hopefully, those are just a few examples. I've shown you that this is this is based in the Bible. This is how our heart responds. And they're all interconnected. Our heart's a mess. <laughs> they're interconnected. Uh My goal in showing you this is to help you do what Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. I want to help you draw out the purpose of your heart. We are thinking beings but not just thinking beings. We're feeling beings. We're not just feeling beings. We're intentional beings, but we're not just intentional. We are complex human beings with a dynamic, multifaceted human experience. Uh, so I- I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Uh, I was asked to pray at Men of Memphis conference Friday night uh, t- in front of 2,000 men that are way more masculine than me. <laughs> and uh, so I get up there uh, I want you to put yourself in my shoes. What was I thinking? Man, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to mess up in front of all those guys. What was I feeling? Butterflies, that's right. Nervous. Anxiety even. What did I choose to do? Well, I I didn't really have a choice over the butterflies in my stomach as I'm sitting in my seat listening to uh, a military guy like Jeff Strucker talk about being shot at, and meanwhile, I'm like, I'm a little scared to go pray up there. Like, (laughs) it was crazy how hilarious. I had no control over the butterflies in my stomach. But what I did have a choice of, I'm going to be committed to being a man of prayer, getting up there and praying as best as I know how that God would continue to bless us as we gather together. So I had my commitments that helped me shape what my heart response was to that context. Do you see that kind of playing out? So when you're nervous or when you're anxious, you may be thinking similar things like, "Oh, my performance is uh, is um, my performance in this is setting. My performance in this setting is important for my future reputation." Sorry about that. I think I look like an idiot. Beliefs. I'm not sure God is in control. Let's go to feelings. I'm shaky. I'm shifty. I'm unsettled. My desires are that I'm, I'm, I'm seeking approval, accommodation. And then decisions. And here's how we see this flesh out in anxiety. When it comes to our volition, what we choose to do, we can be passive or we can be active. In our passivity, we shut down. We give up. This is where depression comes from. Now, I'm not saying all depression comes from here, because depression is very complex, and we will look at that a month from now. But it's important for us to see why anxiety and depression are related, Is because sometimes your depression is a side effect of the heart issue of anxiety. And so you just kind of shut down. You give up. You get depressed. And so in that view, all depression really needs to... To be remedied is a a healthy diet, a lot of rest, and some exercise. Now, not all depression is that way. But when it is a side effect of anxiety being the root problem, that could just be it. Now, what about an active response in anxiety? You seek control. You plan out. You over-prepare. That's the active response. Way. Now, that's, that's kind of how I am. I just overthink things. I try to get control as best I can in my anxiety. But you may be the other way. You may say, well, man, if, if I can't control this threat that is imposed upon my life and my future, then I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to stay in today. And then that turns into depression. You see kind of how that works itself out. So that's the complexity of our human heart. And it's important for us to understand the complexity of our human heart because of the greatest command, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. These aren't just different things. Jesus is commanding us to love God with everything we are and everything we have. In other words, we were created to love God with every function of our heart and thought and affection and desires and indeed. And all of these can contribute to two different responses, either a faith-filled response or a sinful response. We see this in, in a kind of dichotomy played out throughout Scripture. You have flesh, you have spirit. You have folly, you have wisdom. You have lawlessness, obedience, and on and on and on. And so all we need to do to look at a sinful response is go to the Garden of Eden. So flip over to Genesis 3. We're going to look at a sinful response to a context in the Garden of Eden, looking at Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate all right so let's see how this played out with eve the serpent did not come at eve with a stick he came at her with a lie and so she now has a different thought about creation about this tree of knowledge and good of e- and evil and so once she has this thought and she processes it she keeps listening to the serpent what did she see it was a delight to the eyes it was to be desired so thoughts now turn into desires and she wants to eat of it and so in desiring that what does she choose to do she chooses to take of it eat it and then give it to her husband so this is a thin uh, sinful thought response a uh, heart response that started with thoughts, went into desires, and became choices. At the core of our sin is a lack of faith. Faith is the difference maker when it comes to responding in a faith-filled way. So you put faith into this picture, and you're able to not choose a sinful response, but a faith-filled response that is pleasing to God. Faith in Christ is the means by which the dynamic heart is restored to do what it was designed to do, worship God in thought, desire, and choice. Faith is how our heart receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness retakes control of the dynamic design, restoring the beauty of its ability to worship. That's the sin of Adam and Eve. It was a worship problem with a lack of faith, which is where sin comes about. So what about a faith-filled response? Well, let's go look to a different garden. Let's look at the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to see a dynamic, faithful response. And the internal experience of Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, shows us, how to respond in faith. Mark 14, 32 through 36. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. All right, so let's look at Jesus's response. Let's start with feelings because that's what's speaking loudest to him in this scenario. What did he feel? Distressed, sorrowful, dare I say anxiety. This is Jesus's affections in his heart. All right, what about his thoughts? Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. What is he believing? That God the Father can do anything out of this. All right, so we have right feelings. We have right thoughts. What are his actions? What are his choices? Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father. Wow. What a beautiful, faith-filled response through and through from Jesus as he is experiencing what? Anxiety. Anxiety. He's distressed, he's sorrowful, and yet he is able to please God in his human experience. He's not afflicted with discouragement. Uh, I want to introduce a concept to you. He's he's inflicted with negative emotional impact, negative emotional impact. When you're discouraged, you lose or lack confidence. Your motivation to continue is inactive. You're paralyzed. Discouragement is believing that God is not with you. So there's no reason to continue. Whereas negative emotional impact, on the other hand, is having unpleasant emotions that influence a person to feel in such a way that it is not necessarily sin. So think of uh, anxiety, you can think of fear, or you can think of anger. That this Just kind of this impulse of emotion in a moment. That is negative emotional impact. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, I was up in Kentucky. I was a church intern. I was filling up a church van. And uh, I get done filling up the van and get ready to, to, to pull out of the uh, gas station when all of a sudden this guy uh, like just comes to an abrupt halt right next to me. And, uh, and he is angry. His, the look in his eye is, how dare you have the audacity to pull out in front of me? And in that moment, I have a choice. But before I have that choice, I have anger. I'm angry that he's angry at me. How silly is that? I'm angry that he's angry at me. I had no say over that impulse. It just came up. So it's not necessarily wrong yet. Because here's the thing, in that impulse of anger, I've done nothing wrong. But I am responsible for what comes next. So I want to prove that to you in two scenarios. Scenario one. I think about how much I hate that guy's ugly face. I feel weak and disrespected. I choose to roll down my window and give him a vulgar hand gesture as I drive off. That's scenario one. Scenario two, I think about how easily outraged people in society are today. I feel angry, but I also desire to be a peacemaker and a good witness for Christ. I decide to wave, mouth the word sorry, and drive off. Now, which of those two scenarios pleases God? The second, that's right. And I'm happy to tell you that's the one I chose to do. (laughs) But that's not always the case for any of us. We're all liable to have a sinful heart response. So what do we do? What do we do when we have a sinful heart response? We have to confess dynamically. So the cool thing about this allows us to list off. What am I thinking? What am I believing? What am I feeling? What am I desiring? And what am I choosing to do? What am I committed to do? And when we're able to write these things out, we're able to confess them Uh, Think about the prophet Isaiah when he had a vision of the Lord. And he's face to face with this, this holiness. He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim, this angel, this angelic creature, goes to the altar and grabs a coal with tongs. And where does the seraphim press the coal? His lips. He presses the coal upon his lips. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Specific sin confessed is specific sin cleansed. And that's so important for us. Because when we're feeling the complexity of our anxiety, let's come here. Let's hash this out. Lord, what what am I thinking? What am I believing? Jot it down. What am I feeling? Yes, anxiety. But what am I also desiring in this? What am I choosing to do that I feel like I don't have much of a choice in? List it out. What am I committed to? This is getting specific about your sin so that you could see that sin be cleansed specifically. Christians are confessing people. And so we need to take this to the Lord. Sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, depending on how bad it is for you. This is your soul work, right? You probably had homework, right? This is your soul work. Draw this out. List it out. It can be a huge help to you as you investigate, as you draw deeply in the well of your heart. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful promise from Scripture, 1 John 1.9. So how do, we, how do we approach our anxiety in this way? I want to take you to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. All of chapter 12 consists of Jesus having conversations with his disciples and others about things like fear and anxiety. The first passage he's dealing with, uh, he's looking at the, the fear of man as opposed to the fear of God. Uh, another one is talking about uh, what are you going to say when you get in front of rulers and uh, authorities. And then he, uh, he gives a, a parable about a rich fool his conversation uh, on the dangers of materialism. Jesus has just delivered a stern warning. The one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Then he turns to his disciples for a general conversation on worry and the kingdom of God. So look at verses 22 through 34. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And tomorrow thrown into the oven? How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. I want to clarify one quick thing. My translation, the ESV, talked about anxiousness. Um, Now, a lot of, today, we, we mostly see that as a feeling, this anxiety. But I would submit to you that what he's actually saying is do not worry. And a lot of translations do catch this. You look at the CSB, you look at the NLT, and you look at the KJV even. It's all about thoughts. It's all about worry. And so that's where we're going to look at. That's what I want to, to submit to you is that what Jesus is actually condemning here, what he's actually rebuking is worry. Not the feeling of anxiety, but the sinful thought response of worry. So i to make that very clear. And then Jesus gives his disciples three reasons for not worrying. The first is this, life is more than stuff. Life is more than stuff. He's getting to the bottom of materialism. He says food and clothing. If all there is to life is material, that which we can sense, then it makes sense that we would just accumulate a bunch of stuff. If life is all that you can touch and feel, it makes sense that we would just seek all the pleasure that we can. But deep down, we know that there's more. Deep down, we know that there's spiritual substance to our life because we have a soul. Not just we have a soul, we are a soul. Materialism leads to either self-confidence or worry. And we see this with the parable of the rich fool. In Luke 12, 19, we see self-confidence of the rich fool is pride. I have the ability, I'm going to accumulate all that I can and live. That's the rich fool. But what about the person who does not have the ability to to accumulate stuff? Well, then you have a lack of confidence in God. And when you have a lack of confidence in God, you worry. That's the sinful thought response. I'm not sure I've ever uh, experienced uh, worry about where my next meal is going to come from. Uh, I don't know that I can ever say that that's that's been the case for me. And I think probably a lot of you would would join me in that. Um, But I do know what it means to... Uh, to crave. So I I fasted last year, an extended fast, and uh, at night I I would dream, and I had numerous dreams about eating delicious food. I was up in Kentucky, and I was dreaming about Poncho's cheese dip. Man, hot wings, pizza. Are you taking your cravings to the Lord that he would satisfy them? I had made a commitment that I was not going to eat for an extended Period of time. I made that commitment. Are you asking God to satisfy and minimize your cravings? What about the problem of clothing? We don't really worry about having clothing, but we definitely worry about the brands, the logos, the labels, and then posting, how good we look on social media for getting likes. That's a problem. It's very much a problem today. Uh, There was a time in my life when I was looking at men's fashion vlogs and following accounts on Instagram while my spiritual life was on the fritz. I wanted to look good so people didn't ask questions, too deep of questions. If that meant buying another suit, I was going to do it. What are you quick to put on so that you don't have to address the problem occurring in your soul? If you worry about the physical, you will neglect the spiritual. Worry is faithless. The Father knows what you need, so when you worry, you are not trusting Him at His word. God cares for you because He values you. That's the second reason that Jesus gives His disciples. God cares for you because He values you. He uses the illustration of ravens and lilies. Ravens, ugly birds. You can't take a raven to the temple to sacrifice it like you can a dove. It's a nasty bird. Lilies, a common flower you would find in any field. If God loves these and provides for these, how much more will he provide for you? He says he would, he would dress the lilies better than King Solomon can be adorned. It's not a slight at Solomon. It's a brag on God. He does a better job of providing for you than a great king can do in providing for himself. Jesus is making a logical point from the lesser to the greater. If he loves and values these things and provides for them, he's gonna provide for you because he cares for you. He values you. He has disposed of himself to care for you, the creator, you, the creation. Worry is a slap in the face of God because He cares about you and He's obligated Himself to provide, to protect, and to pastor you. God wants to care for you and He is capable to care for you. That's where we look at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters. He doesn't make us lie down in dry wastelands. He doesn't lead us beside rushing water, places that are dangerous, dilapidated. He he leads us beside still waters. He leads us to be still and know that he is God. God cares for you because he values you. And then the third reason, worry adds nothing to your life. Jesus tells his disciples, worry worry adds nothing to your life. Which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his or her life? Worry is the sinful thought response of anxiety. Our minds are racing to see what we can can control in our situation. So we map out, we plan out, we try to take control of it. That's, That's worry. Our minds are racing about how we can take control. Faith is the key to responding in a way that is worshipful, not worrisome. And he says in verse 30, says something very interesting. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. He's addressing that the world seeks after these things, the people that are not the covenant people of God. They're the ones that seek after these things. But you, you know, you know God. And yet you seek after them because why? You overvalue them. God provides for you an abundance of his kindness and you know this. And yet you are getting caught up in what the world gets caught up in. In order to seek his kingdom, as he tells us to do, In verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. A heavenly trade must take place. I want to draw your attention to who's saying these words. Jesus, the king, says, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. What a rich promise from the king himself about the kingdom. That he is wanting to give you his kingdom. But he has a few conditions. You got to sell your possessions and give to the needy. You got to give up your world and invest in your eternity. You got to direct your heart, thought, desire, action, commitment toward God's kingdom. You got to treasure what God treasures. A Bible word for this trade, this heavenly trade that takes place, is called repentance. You got to repent from your own kingdom, and you got to turn to God's kingdom. Heavenly trade must take place. Maybe you're grasping for control in areas where you cannot have it. Repent of your worry by trusting that God is sovereign, He is the one in control. Maybe you're anxious because you simply overvalue something that the world values. Repent by inviting Christ to sit on the throne of your heart. Maybe it's not over food, maybe it's not over clothing. But you may be worrying about something that only the Lord can provide you. Repent. Turn to God. Trust him to provide it in his timing. Maybe it's your salvation. Maybe it's your salvation. Because you're thinking, I haven't earned it. Let me put that to rest. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. It is God's grace to you. It's a gift. All you can do is receive it and show it off. Rest in this. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Make the trade. Repent from your worry. Trust God. All right, and how do I trust God? Let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. The the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and he wrote to the church in Philippi to encourage them in their disunity and uncertainty. The main point I want you to get from Philippians 4, 4 through 9, is that an anxious heart needs needs the broader perspective of God's presence to see threats properly. An anxious heart needs the broader perspective of God's presence to see threats properly. Properly. Now let's look at verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, again, I, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, requests be made known to God. An anxious heart needs the broader perspective of God's presence to see threats properly. Paul does not command that we turn off our anxious feeling, does he? He does not. He gives us some commands. The first is to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice always. Having joy is greater than experiencing happiness. I want you to see that. Do not miss that. Having joy is greater than experiencing happiness. Rejoicing means having great contentment and satisfaction in the Lord. You believe that God is good to give you what he gives you. Moreover, he is good to keep you from what what he's keeping you. Although joy is a feeling, it is much more than a temporary feeling of happiness. And unlike happiness, when you strive after the joy in Christ, you can obtain it. Have joy. Be joyful. Rejoice. That's the first command he gives us. Secondly, he says, be reasonable. Be reasonable. This sounds strange to us. But what Paul is actually talking about is having a sense of settledness. Having a sense of settledness about Us about where we are. Do people know you to be a settled person? In being settled, we show others that the Lord is near to our circumstances. God's presence is the reason for our comfort in the middle of perceived threat. A reasonable or settled person doesn't try to manipulate people in order to take control. She is gracious in her relationships with others because God is gracious to her. Be reasonable, be settled. And then third, do not worry, he says to us. Do not worry. As we have seen, worrying is uh, about the physical and it distracts from the spiritual. And if worrying is the sinful thought response of anxiety, we must look to the faith-filled thought response of anxiety that is prayer. What's the opposite action of worry? It's prayer. It's prayer. And then he uses uh, the verb in this passage, is actually make known, is what he says. Make known. So we replace the mental activity of worry with prayer by making known to God what threatens us. And Paul uses a variety of words here to direct us towards prayer. He says, Prayer supplication, thanksgiving, requests. Do you know that there are different aspects to a prayer? There's different features to it. And Paul maps that out for us like this. First, we acknowledge God is who he is. God, you are wise, all wise. You are all powerful and you are good. You acknowledge God is who he is. Secondly, you recognize God does what he does. God, you do good things. You are wise, and so you make wise choices. You are powerful, and so you know when to use that power, and you use it in righteousness. You acknowledge God is who he is. You recognize God does what he does. And then you thank God for what he has already done. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you recognize, you thank God for what he has done for you in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That he has given you his power unto salvation in the gospel. That Jesus lived the life you could not live, died the death you deserved, and rose from the grave to conquer death, to conquer sin. Thank God for what he has already done, and then ask God to do what only he can do. God, I am feeling anxious, and that anxiety, it's making me worry. Worry about whether or not I can trust you. God, I want to give that to you and ask that you would take away my worry, that you would relieve me of my anxiety, that I would make faith-filled choices even in the midst of my anxiety. You ask God to do what only he can do. Your application is to pray deeper prayers than God help me not be anxious. Pray for good desires matched with his will and his truth the result from persistent prayers in the midst of anxiety is that we experience peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that we don't fully understand comes upon us because God keeps us. He keeps you in your thoughts, your desires, and your choices. The more that we pray, the more we will see our thoughts of worry be replaced by new things, honorable things, just things, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy things, things that would honor Jesus because they are of Jesus. Remember our two truths at the beginning. God can be trusted. God is delighted to give you peace in this way. He promises to be with you. In his presence, you have everything you could possibly need. God can be trusted. Secondly, God's word is sufficient to help you be sanctified through your problems. In his presence, anxiety dwindles and fades. One day, our worries and fears will be like a bad dream as we only ever experience the peace of God in eternity. Until that day, we must live out Philippians 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in the Bible, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I'm going to ask Mark Smith if he would come up and he would pray for us.
1: You know, it's always interesting where uh, you know, I saw Andrew show up here about six weeks ago. And I thought, I know this dude. I used to teach him in college. And it's always interesting when you had someone that was in your class and now you are taught by them. So it's always a pleasure and an honor to see the Lord really work in your life that way. So, uh, so thank you, Andrew, for sharing. I wanted to kind of put some closing comments on this today. Uh, as uh, we kind of bring this to a close for today. It's not a close permanently. It's just uh, kind of a close for the message today. And I'd say, just to summarize before we pray, the first thing would be, there is hope in Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. And I will guarantee you today, everyone in this room, you've either experienced some of the things that he's talking about today, you have family members that have experienced it. You have friends that have experienced it. You have coworkers that have experienced it. Everyone has been touched by what he's talking about around anxiety and depression. So we want you to walk away today. There's a couple of things that Andrew said is that Jesus can be trusted. He has a plan. He has a purpose. There is hope. There is help. Everyone has been impacted by this. There is clearly a spiritual nature to what Andrew's talking about today and what you're either experiencing, you have friends and family that are experiencing. There's also an emotional nature to it. And there's also a physical nature to the challenges of anxiety and depression. And I would say the biggest thing that we could communicate to you today is that we are here to help you. Either someone else has experienced it, or there are resources available to help you. Don't go it alone. Don't think that you're the only one because that's a lie. There are resources here. Everyone here, we're here to help you. If you're experiencing it, we're here to help you. If you have friends that are experiencing it, we're here to help you. If you have family members, we're here to help you. Don't believe the lie. Of the evil one. Because he's a liar. But as he mentioned in these last verses. Jesus is. He is truth. He is honorable. He is right. He is pure. He is lovely. He is good. He is excellent. And he is worthy of your praise. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We call on the name of Jesus today. We call on the Holy Spirit to cover every person in this room, every man and woman, Lord. We all have spiritual battles that we're all dealing with, Lord. I pray today victory will be won in Jesus in the hearts and minds of the people that are here today not only for themselves, Father, but for their friends and their family as they reach out and they encourage, they try to find help and resources as they point them toward the gospel, but they also point them toward resources that are available to work through, talk through, and see the way, see the opportunity for hope. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that the battles today were won by you. And they'll be won by you in the days ahead. I pray you bless the men and women that are here today, Lord. And we have hope in Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.